Hello, everyone. Just a quick note about my interview with Michael Downs. We covered so much great material that I decided to break it up into two parts. These next two episodes, four and five, encompass the entirety of our interview. If you are able to, I highly recommend that you listen to them both. Michael has a lot to say and a fantastic perspective on both the industry and his career as a whole. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as we did. If I design something that's a problem, you're, I'm not going to be crying and slamming my trailer door when you tell me that's going to be a problem. I'm going to be. I'm going to say, thank God somebody read the drawings. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talk About the Industry. Today, my guest is the wonderful, talented Michael Downs. Michael Downs is a career production and scenic designer of events, experiences, and environments. For over 40 years, he has filled roles as varied as experiential designer, creative director, production and scenic designer, environments designer, video content designer, illustrator and art director, and he has over 900 productions to his credit in 44 countries spanning five continents across 49 of the 50 United States. Michael's work has been seen from local dinner theater to regional tours and Broadway within 19 North American science and historical museums in connection with the last four national presidential elections as part of four NFL Super Bowls and five Olympic Games on most major television networks throughout the pop, rock and rap stadiums, clubs and concert halls and in association with countless corporate mobile experiences trade shows, launches, press meetings, and events. In addition, he has also contributed to the illustrations of four books for children and collaborated with the U.S. military developing theatrical tricks to help fool an enemy on the battlefield. His contributions reach further than most would expect, touching virtually every communications channel that requires environments. Public spectaculars, theater, opera, retail, corporate meetings, and product launches, sport production, concerts, mobile marketing, consumer events, museum and trade show exhibits, as well as film, television, and video. Michael is an Emmy Award nominee for NBC's Democracy Plaza in Rockefeller Center and a 2011 Reggie Award nominee for his work on the History Channel Pop Shop. He is an Adrian Award winner and has received an After Dark Award, two Mary Jane Teal Awards, and three Sarah Awards for theatrical designs in the U.S., Michael holds a bachelor's degree in scenic design from the School of Theater Arts at Boston University, magna cum laude, 1986. And he continues to be an active member of unions IATSE number 190 and United Scenic Artists 829. Welcome, Michael Downs. Whoa. I was beginning to think I wasn't going to get to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, it's your career, man. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I'm so... I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, uh, you're you're a person who is dear to my heart for many reasons. But aside from that, you are one of the most phenomenally talented people I've ever met in any creative field. And uh, and I feel super lucky to know you and to work with you. And happy that you are here to talk to me and the invisible audience about what the hell you do and how the hell you do it. <laughs> yeah, happy to be here. I feel the same, Matt. Good. I, I always hesitate when I try to label you um, because you do such a myriad of things. And I think it's easy for those of us in the industry to, to latch on to like scenic designer or production designer, but that's not, that doesn't really, that's not really all encompassing of your skill set. So how do you define yourself? Try negotiating a contract with all that. 
because <laughs> it's very difficult when you're up against somebody who does only one of those things. I'm lucky enough to have been in so many parts of the business and have, wearing so many hats. Uh, and some people might say that when you wear that many hats, you're like a, a jack of all trades and a master of none, basically, <laughs> you know, that you, but, but I like to think uh, that this industry has provided me a lot of uh, opportunities to demonstrate the key point of my existence, which is being creative. Yeah. Uh, once you have the skills to convey an idea on paper and to negotiate with clients, shops, uh, audiences, etc. It's your creativity that will set you apart. Yeah. And so it's it's difficult for me to ever develop uh, an, what they call the elevator pitch. Yeah, because, sure. Because it's hard to describe personally, even from this side of the microphone, it's hard to, to define it in one easy way. Uh, the good part is uh, being a creative person, you can, you can decide what genre you're working in, first of all, which is going to inform which part of the creative brain juice you're going to use. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that, that once you know, if, whether it's video content or whether it's a retail store, a pop-up shop, or whether it's theater or whether it's uh, sport production, you, you tend to know uh, certain things which will get you off the ground. Yeah. And mostly those have to do with uh, real practical things. Okay, you yeah. can be as creative as you want, but the practical things are where is it, when is it, how soon is it, uh, uh, what's the budget. Right. Know, yeah. All those things will help you uh, define where you are. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, to me, I, I hear the the master of all trades uh, or jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, but I, I, when I think of your skill set, I, I actually think of it uh, the opposite way. Uh, uh, master of all trades, uh, jack of none. That doesn't make sense. But you know. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think that every every label that we could give you, as you say, it starts with creativity, but it also involves you you know, approaching a, some sort of blank space and creating an environment for it. Yeah. Well, that's, that, I think that's why I like that somebody came up with this terminology experience designer. Yeah. Because once you, once you put, nobody knows what that means, who, who doesn't know the world of experience, Yeah. but it does define really what I do because experience can be inside, outside. It can be in the theater. It can be in a convention center. It can be anywhere. Yeah, uh, and experience design is really the closest that uh, uh, the other one is director of creative solutions, which I use yeah. on my on my emails because <laughs> yeah. it, it really is the the definition of. Uh, and I've had a lot of people say, if I need a, a creative force on my team, uh, I'm going to be hiring you first, it's, yeah. and, and you come with all those extra extra gadgets, the design chops and the ability to manage something through a shop and to get it on site and art directed. In the old days, mm -hmm. it used to be that if you showed up every time you were called, you worked forever for that yeah. team because, hey, you showed up. And now it's the price of admission. Everybody shows up. And, and the only thing that defines you as something different or more or less is how creative you are. The creative yeah. idea is what sells. And that's why I think in some cases our industry has lost touch with the relationship is because they're always after the next great solution and the next great creative. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, the creative, um, my foot is stuck in one bucket of 
being a creative person. And the other yeah. bucket is being a practical person. Yeah. My, wife, my wife is always saying, you know, how can, how can somebody so wildly creative be so disappointed when his pins aren't in the right cup? <laughs> because she thinks that, it, you know, we have three kids and they're always taking my pins and yeah. they're always taking my favorite ones because that happens to be their favorite ones too. <laughs> and so she, she's like, I don't understand it. And it's because I am, I'm like a drummer. Okay, yeah. Drum, drummers take forever to set up their equipment. Yeah, but, but that's because they don't want to look for the equipment, right? They're playing and they're hitting their toms and their cymbals and everything because they know exactly where it is and they don't have to think about it. And it's the same way with me. Oh yeah, yeah. If you've ever seen a, a an over uh, an over the top shot of Neil Peart's drum set, I, I mean. Right. There's there's nine million pieces, but they're all exactly in the spot that he wants them to be. Yeah, I I, I can relate with that. I think uh, I've been thinking recently about uh, decision making and how much time I want to spend on on decisions and decisions of which type. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was uh, reading about uh, essentially willpower and decision making and just that you that it's a finite resource. And it can, your resources can grow and shrink based on, you know, your sleep and your health and stress levels and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, you know, right now, uh, you know, we're recording this in May uh, and we're still, uh, you know, in Chicago, we're still shelter in place for till the end of the month. It'll probably get extended. So I've really zoned in on what decisions do I want to make? What decisions do I not want to make? So I, if I, you know, if I were you, yeah, I wouldn't want to have to go looking for my pens or, you know, whatever. I'm trying to focus on the task at hand, which is being creative around this central idea. Well, particularly nowadays when yeah. everything is really breakneck speed, right? Yeah. Everything, everything, every job I get is not enough, not enough time to do it. And, yeah. and the pressure is on us to, to, to solve a lot of problems quickly. Because everybody, particularly the production designer, is wait. Everybody's waiting on them. Yeah. The lighting guy can't do his job. The budgeting can't happen. The yeah. shops can't start ordering material, and the client can't sign on off, off on anything. So it's my responsibility to get everything on paper as quick as possible. So I think when you're talking about thought process and managing the expectations you have for yourself in solving problems, the 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 real issue is. Sometimes you don't get to control the time. Sometimes yeah. you need everything to be in one place. So you start at a comfort level and yeah. you, can, you can get into the project completely and be totally focused without having to worry about gathering all your stuff or looking at a clock. Listen, my whole career, I have never concerned myself with how much time it takes. Yeah. I've concerned myself with when it's due. Yeah. Because my stuff is going to be different. Yeah. If I was designing the same refrigerator every week, and making a new color for it or adding a ice machine or a lower tray or whatever, it'd be one thing because I have all the elements already. It's just a practical assembly situation. But for yeah. me, I'm, I, uh, I was always the kid in school who got a new play and read through the play, right, and tore the back page out of the play, which had a ground plan and or a picture. Yeah, it yeah. Took me, took me 10 seconds to figure out that all the stage direction was from a stage manager, not a playwright. Yeah, sure. I always had uh, arguments at Boston University with with fellow fellow students yeah. who were saying that's exactly what the playwright liked about the first production, and he wants that he or she wants that in there. 
And I was saying, no way. It, no. it really, it gets in the way of how you look at a piece. Believe me, when I was when I designed Greece in South America, they sent me all over the planet to see every Greece production, which helped me a lot. Sure. I never thought it would, but I saw what I didn't want to do and what, yeah. what what people spent money on and how they they changed the story in order to make their scenic element or elephant work better. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I it was a great experience to go to Dusseldorf and Broadway and the right. U.S. tour and see the right. all-girl production of Greece in Asia. Oh, wow. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons it was fun to do that. Yeah. It taught me that, seriously, the, the, the creative mind mm-hmm. can never be put in a, with a price tag, okay? Yeah. You, you can't say, oh, the budget's only $2,500 for scenery. Then I'm going to give them a $2,500 solution. Yeah. It can never happen. And I think that the word of mouth that happens in one's career when when one sets himself up like that right. is is the thing that gets you more work. There's no amount of social media or yeah. or websites or anything that can describe how you work. It can yeah. only show pictures and fabulous reviews from people that that have worked with you before, but it cannot describe your thought process or your ability to connect dots, solve problems, m- make things happen at a budget. And you know, there's always the 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 ill-fated, hey, we showed up on site and somebody put an air conditioner <laughs> vent in the theater and it wasn't on any of the drawings. Oh man. How are we going to fix it? And my question to the clients is always, so you don't want to you don't want to send me to the load in? What's right. going to happen when that happens? Right. Are you going to trust the carpenter to just cut wherever he wants to get it in there? Or is there some way that I can creatively change the scenic element just to get it in the building? So yeah, you know, all those things pertain to being a creative entity. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think when we, a lot of times when I'm talking to students or uh, or uh, people that are that are just getting into the industry, you know, they and this happened to me early in my career. I thought it was, you know, like what I. Uh, not my process, but what I knew or didn't know was going to get me the job. And what I found in my career is it's the exact opposite. A lot of a lot of times I'll say, you know, the ratio is sort of like 80 to 20 for lighting designers as far as like 80% how you do the job and 20% what it looked like, uh, particularly for us, because, you know, no, nobody, nobody really knows what it's going to what it's going to look like. I mean, you can send renderings, you can, you know, you can you and you have to communicate what it's going to look like, but you until you get there, you know, you you don't really see what an LD has done with a place. Uh, whereas uh, what you're doing is, you know, there's, it's a little more um, tactile as far along uh, each of the different stages, I think, um, because you because you can put it on paper. But ultimately, that doesn't negate the need for design work on site and design choices, right? Yeah, yeah, but but mostly uh, a lighting designer doesn't get jobs from renderings about what it's going to look like. Yeah. They they get jobs from the experience the audience has and yeah. the word of mouth from the collaborators. This is a collaborative art. Yeah. Matt, Matt this isn't me in a trailer with a purple ascot slamming my trailer door <laughs> and, until somebody gets the yellow correct. This is <laughs> this is us working yeah. together. So the I've always assumed uh, and preached that yeah. I I need two people by my side to make any project work great. Okay, I can design the hell out of a plywood box, 
Right. If I don't have an excellent painter, that plywood box is never going to look like a throne. Yeah. Okay? The, the, the painter is going to make that box look like a throne. And if I don't have a kick-ass lighting designer like yourself on my project, that box that looks like it's been painted to be a throne right. is never going to be in a palace. Yeah. Okay, that's the difference. And so I think in your case, whereas I can parade myself around with animations and, and reels and all sorts of stuff that shows my process, yeah, most people will hire me because of word of mouth and because it, the process backs it up you're going to get jobs from people like me because you make my life better. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so you you solve a lot of problems that I can't. Now yeah. that doesn't say that a lot of set designers don't design a ceiling and then challenge <laughs> you to like the show. All right. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've been there and done that. And those, those simple tricks to fix that problem are, are very easy to do once you know them. But as, as a young designer, we're all going to make those problems, those problems happen for lighting designers and learn from them. Hopefully. Yeah, well, and I and I think, uh, you know, like you say, it all goes back to collaboration. I recently I've been sort of uh, beating the drum of uh, the the idea of the lone genius is complete bullshit, you know, not in our business. No, not in our business. And I truthfully, I don't think in, in any business, uh, but particularly not in such a collaborative one as ours. You know, I mean, we if I have a client come up to me and say that they're pleased with the work my first thought is always great, but also like, you know, the way that we got here was the 17 people behind me, my assistant yeah. or associate, my programmer, yeah. my production electrician, the whole team, you know, it's, there's no, there's, and thankfully it's not the way my brain is wired. Cause not everyone's like this, but I think, and similar with you, what I see is, is like, yes, we, like what I did is important in how we got here, but also, you know, the the other design collaborators the other people you know the the shop that built the the scenic elements you know the rental house that got us the lights all that sort of stuff they are part of that process and yeah. i think uh a lot of what i i've seen a lot of folks where they have they're they're really creative and they're and they can come up they're really creative when nobody else is in the room, you know, they come up with a great idea. I'll be right back. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But then, but then you get on site and it's well, so this air vent is here and they go like, well, can we move the air vent? And it's yeah. like, no, 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 no. That's, that's the wrong. That's not why we're telling you about it. Right. Right. You know, no, I get it. Look, there's, there's two things I wanted to say about that. One is, yeah. uh, as a, as a person who's, who's dependent on a great team of people, yeah. like not only the collaborators in the creative team yeah. who's directing it or lighting it or putting costumes on people, welders, there's welders, carpenters, painters, propers. Yeah. You get the TV, you end up with 29 on your staff. Yeah. I'll talk about it in a second, hopefully. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, I think that, that you're correct about the lone genius. Yeah. It's not, it's not what we do. I often say, and, and it's on most of my social media. Yeah. I need to know a little bit about everything, but not everything about anything. Because I always have somebody I can reach out to. Look, yeah. I, when I designed the, the Vancouver Olympics Metals Plaza, which is an outdoor stage that has to revolve yeah. outdoors in the snow and rain, and somebody from the International Olympic Committee said, you have to build this structure so it can withstand 50 mile an hour sustained winds and 90 inches of snow a day. Oh my God. I, I said, well, you, you asked the wrong guy, but let me make a call. 
You know, yeah. that's why we have engineers that work with us. That's why we have really kick-ass uh, staging companies that work with us and staging supervisors who can handle all of that stuff mm. and figure out where we put the solutions uh, in place. Like, yeah. Listen, Albert Einstein, who you know came up with that theory, what is it, relativity? Right, something like that. I yeah, so, so the, <laughs> the word on the street was he's, he was the smartest guy in the planet, right? Right. But, but for the months, maybe years before he solved the theory, Mm -hmm. He was running it by his colleagues and running it by his friends at parties until ad nauseum, really. Until and, and he would run up with these solutions. And the act of talking about it with his friends and colleagues mm -hmm. who, who responded to him and trusted him and he trusted them. Yeah, sure. It it, it came it, it came to pass that just hearing himself talk about it, he was solving problems as he did it. So yeah. surrounding yourself with with smarter people, more talented people, yeah. and in some cases, less talented people who are going to respond like any Joe at the bus stop. You know, th all those things pertain to what we do and help our process. We, yeah. are, we are so not any kind of genius. We are a collective genius, only as good as the team. Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, what I say, over 900 projects, something like that. Yeah, over 900. So, so somebody asked me once, I think I was talking to a university class full of designers, they, they said, listen, some of the projects I've done, and I've only done 10 projects, it's been like a pain in the ass. And mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't pick up, pull their weight on the team. And a lot of people showed up at the last minute. And, yeah. and it reminded me that even on my first show at the public theater in New York City, I yeah. met the lighting designer. I met and had my first conversation with the lighting designer yeah. at load-in. <laughs> How ridiculous so, is that? <laughs> so it's possible that that show is going to suck. Yeah. Okay, because what we need is process to be really good. Yeah. We, 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 and, and also the first lighting director that was on the Vancouver Olympics yeah. metal uh, stage, he was trying to solve the lighting for this very unique shape and very unique backstage situation yeah. with a traditional road lighting plot. So everything rolled off a truck, all mounted to, to truss, and yeah. flew up into a position where it was completely visible. And our goal as a team was to not do that. Yeah, but, sure. But he was doing multiple stages and right. how we do it. So we needed somebody to step in to solve the problem with a more uh, – creative solution. And we had we had the team from audio was on board. They researched materials that we could put the clusters behind. Oh, the cool. arrays were hidden. Everything unusual for what we do, you know. Yeah. But that that set was going to be outdoors for right. almost two and a half months, given the Paralympics and the Olympics. Right. We wanted to make sure it was right. So I think I think you as you go in your career, hopefully you don't have to go nine hundred productions before you find you find yourself rolling through life, gathering the team of moss that right. make you a great group of people to hire. And yeah. when people ask me, who do we want to work on this? They're asking me not because they don't have a clue. It's because they know somebody like me has somebody that they like to work with. And yeah, let's, let's be honest. Even if you're digging ditches right. in your whole life, you want the right guy with the shovel next to you. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to be doing all the work. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So, and you don't have to describe to the guy in the trench next to you how to use the shovel yeah. and where to throw the dirt, right? So, yeah. It's twofold. You're, you're surrounding yourself with creative, powerful, 
and supportive people, but yeah. you're also you've you've got a hidden way of communicating because it's all natural. It's we've we've already figured out that if you trip, I'm going to catch you. Right. And, and if if I design something that's a problem, you're I'm not going to be crying and slamming my trailer door when you tell me that's going to be a problem. Right. I'm yeah. going to be I'm going to say thank God somebody read the drawing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, that's a good I mean, point. That's, uh, collaboration is one thing, but team. Yeah. The team is the important thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, all of my. Uh, most successful moments as a designer and a professional uh, have involved uh, uh, elements of collaboration, but but as you say, uh, you know, a team, a support team uh, across all departments that you know that that really understood that concept. Let's change gears a little bit. I want to ah, talk about. Cool. <laughs> I want to talk about your. Uh, let's go back to uh, to high school. And yeah. let's talk about how I'm you are breaking out already. <laughs> right. My goatee is receding. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm really interested. A lot of, a lot of questions that I get. And I, and I think one thing that illuminated, uh, uh, the careers of many mentors and colleagues of me is, of mine is how did you get, you know, how'd you find yourself in theater? Uh, it's a funny story. I mean, yeah. it, most people probably when I retire, if I ever retire, since yeah. I have such young kids, <laughs> uh, I would probably make it a lot more romantic than it is. But it's like the first of many times where I tripped over a log yeah. and fell into a career or stepped in a bucket and ended up in a relationship. Yeah. It's, that's what my life has been. It's been a little bit I don't want to say it's predestined or predetermined because I don't believe in that stuff, mm -hmm. I, but it's like being at the right place at the right time, Yeah, you know, and, and by accident, the first, listen, I was, I was the kid in, in high school that never left the art hall. You know, I was forever in music, in art, in drama. Well, I wasn't really in drama until my senior year. Yeah. At the end of my junior year, I, I wanted to go on a date with this girl who was in the theater department. Yeah. And she said, why don't we go out on Saturday? there's this award show for the high school for yeah. the drama department and you can go as my date. And I was like, all right, that's great. So she's uh, beautiful and powerful. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, she, we got there and she goes, Oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm really not going to be in the audience at all because I'm presenting two awards. I'm singing two songs. I'm performing a, an act. I'm doing all of these things. <laughs> and so much you, of you're really, <laughs> really going to sit by yourself, but we can have dinner afterwards. And I was like, Oh, okay. And then she came up to me and said, Hey, the, the director wants to know if you wouldn't mind stepping backstage because he doesn't have anybody who could run the light board. Ooh. And I was like, well, I don't know how to run the light board. And it was the old, you know, yeah. dimmer rack with the full <laughs> down and, and all that. Yeah. You know, yeah. It was pretty, pretty overwhelming to think that I could do it. Yeah. But he described to me how to do it. And I, I was backstage watching the award show. Yeah. Uh, from a unique perspective. And I thought, I thought, this is something that is uniquely combining all of my real interests yeah first of all they, they're getting to make as much noise as they want which in high school you don't get to do very much <laughs> yeah they're, they're being rewarded for something in in ways that you normally don't get rewarded with a statue and right. with praise from your your team right and and they're getting to make art yeah at, on a dimensional level and so i asked the director at that end of my junior year backstage at the award show what can i do to get involved in something like this and win an award like that yeah and he said you should join stagecraft yeah and so i did 
Yeah. And, and it was a first place that I found real comfort, uh, surrounded by those crazy, wacky people that I always liked being around, right? But really fitting in because I was a crazy, wacky person as well. But I combined, <laughs> yeah. combined my love for music, my ability to, to create, and all the art classes that I had, it was like stepping into something that felt super comfortable. Yeah. And that was, I think that, that was it. And by the end of that senior year, I was what they call an honor thespian. You know, I'd worked 5,732 hours <laughs> in, one, in one year and was off to the races trying to find a college to go to because I was sure this is what I wanted to do for sure. That's really great. I think a lot of kids uh, don't, don't have that kind of excitement or clarity behind even just the, the, a potential career, you know? Yeah. Uh, my, my mother, who's a university professor, uh, uh, and a former opera singer, she said to me once while I was researching undergraduate schools, she said, you know, uh, uh, the average undergraduate student changes their major three different times. <laughs> right. And I, uh, you know, and I, I thought like, good God, like, how do you pick a school if you, Ooh. if you're trying to change your major three times? Right. But I mean, and I, and I got everything I needed out of my undergraduate program, but it was, Similarly, uh, similarly to you, it was like, well, I know I, I want to do this, but I don't, you know, I don't quite know where I fit yet. Did you, did your friends and family, when you said to them, I want to study theater, how, how, what was the reaction? Well, you know, you, you anticipate a career in the arts as being against everybody's wishes, including your friends yeah. who, who don't understand the commitment and don't really understand. Like m later, my parents would tell me that I ruined the theater for them because <laughs> they got to tour backstage and that every time they had gone to the theater, they thought when the curtain opened that that room had always been there. Oh, my forever. God. And that we were just looking through a, a window. And that's. That tells you how long ago it was, by the way, because yeah. we, we just haven't been educated like we have for the past 20 years with yeah. technology. Yeah. Uh, but, but to answer your question, I, I was a product of uh, an ex-NBA basketball player who became a life insurance salesman yeah. and his wife, my mother, mm -hmm. who was a teacher of the deaf. So both of them had careers at one time that were against everybody's wishes. Yeah. You certainly, as an NBA player in the late 50s, early 60s, you weren't making the money that you were now. No, in fact, not even close. My dad gave it up because he was making $3,500 or something for, for, for a 50-game uh, season. So he wanted, he wanted to get something that was a little more uh, substantial. I won't guess that they didn't spend nights worrying about me. Because, uh, yeah. you know, I've been all over the world doing what I do. And in some cases, taking the job without doing much research about where and what I'm going to be doing. Yeah, sure. And, and as a production designer, you're the first on the ground and the last to leave in some cases. So you, I was often in foreign countries without the language by myself. Right. To negotiate everything. Yeah. So, so I think that they've spent my parents, if I were to put them on this call, mm -hmm. they would probably say, you have no idea how much worry we have, because I think I'm a parent now. And yeah. All I want is, is some sort of uh, safety and, and comfort for my kids. Yeah. And, and just being involved in the creative arts tells you, you're not going to have touch with that all the time. There's going to be times where you have to commit uh, and take risks. Yeah. So I don't know. I think they've always shown me great, great confidence yeah. and great respect for what I've chosen. 
Yeah, that's yeah, that makes sense. My even even my parents, both of whom were opera singers for uh, that went into higher ed. And as my father jokes, the two worst paying professions, you know, (laughs) performance and education. Uh, I remember coming home to uh, after my sophomore year in college and I just taking I had just finished my first semester that had a lot of real uh design uh production work and one of them was uh was uh drafting for theater which was the most difficult uh class that was offered at the time because our TD Ed was just like such a stickler and we were learning to draft by hand and I came home and I was like I was like mom I love this drafting class that I just finished. I really love drafting. And she was like, you know, electrical engineers make $60,000 a year. (laughs) What? Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, a different kind of drafting, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. So you, you found you, you fell in love with the theater, uh, because you got to participate in high school and then you are searching for a school. You went to Boston university school of theater arts. Why did, did you but, go there? But I didn't get in right away. Oh really? I, my, my first choice was uh, Southern Methodist university because they had a good program and it was not far away from home, but Southern Methodist university took a look at my ACT scores and said that I should work in either uh, highway repair <laughs> or in agriculture. Oh uh, yeah. And so I didn't get into the school of my choice. So I did like most kids stayed in state at that time. I mean, nowadays, being on staff at Shocker Studios at Wichita State University, I know that we've made a deal with a whole region now right. that apl- that applies the the cost of being in state tuition mm-hmm. to all those states because oh, great. It's, it's something that they've done to sort of broaden their their scope of recruiting. Yeah, uh, and we didn't have that at that time, so I decided to stay at home and keep applying to schools that I liked until I got in and go to Wichita State University. Yeah. And and so for two years, I was at Wichita State University and I got to do a lot of great things. I mean, sure. it wasn't exactly what I was wanting to study, mm-hmm. but I involved myself in the theater arts at Wichita State as a as a first and second year student. And I, I took care of all of my electives. Yeah. As they say. <laughs> and, yeah. and lo and behold, had no idea, but actually left Wichita State to get into Boston University with two minors for my time <laughs> at school at Wichita State, one in anthropology and one in psychology, both of which I would later need all the time. Oh, so, man, yeah. <laughs> again, again, tripping over a diploma and falling into a, a study, yeah. that was the case. I mean, listen, the only way I got into Boston University, it's it's another story of tripping in mm-hmm, a way, mm-hmm. is my parents moved to New York City. My dad got a, a big promotion in his life insurance company and he, he and the family moved up there. And when I finished school, I said, well, I'll come up there anyway, because it has so much more opportunity in the theater in the Northeast. Right. I'll just move up with you. And so I moved up there. And this was a month before school started, yeah. the college started. And I'd said to Wichita State, I'm not coming back. Yeah. So somehow I figured I'd work it out. Yeah, right? sure. So I called Boston University, which I had been applying to every year religiously. Yeah, yeah. And they had been saying every year very nicely, mm-hmm. thank you, but no thank you. Yeah. I don't even know why we would want somebody from Kansas. <laughs> right. But then next thing you know, I called up there and I said, hey, listen, uh, it's a month before school and I know you guys are probably full, but is anybody backed out? Has yeah. anybody decided they didn't want to go to college? Is there a slot for somebody who has really no other choice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they said, actually, two people dropped out, and we, uh, you know, are, have a quota system. Yeah. We'll yeah. be really honest with you. So, you, you getting into school would, would, it'd be great to see your work, but don't 
don't set your sights on a full career here because if we bring you in, you're going to have to, you're, you're a third year student. You're yeah. going to have to jump a lot of hurdles that a normal first year student wouldn't have to. Yeah. So I went in there and they brought me in and, and a month before I, I moved all my stuff up to Boston University without having the letter that says you're, <laughs> you're in, in. The school. Oof, man. That was, that was my first stop when I was there. <laughs> Can I have this really important letter that's, that's yeah. definitely yeah, going to tell me? Without that letter, you can't actually uh, enroll. Yeah. You can't actually put all the shit you drove up with in a dorm. <laughs> in a dorm, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, I'm certainly glad they took you. <laughs> and my parents, I think, were a little bit concerned, yeah. but they felt a lot better. Plus, I was closer to home, all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, so talk to me about um, the transition from uh, from BU to New York City and how, because I know you've worked with uh, a couple of really, uh, really well-known scenic designers uh, that kind of helped you get started. When you live in a town that's not New York City, even if it's Boston or New Haven or Bridgeport or Stanford or any of those towns up in the Northeast, yeah. it's not New York. Yeah. Okay. Right. And somebody from Chicago who's pretty used to hearing that Chicago's a second city. Yeah. Whatever. Oof. Yeah. Bullshit, whatever. But but these schools, uh, these these towns won't hire you unless you have an address in New York City, especially at that time. Yeah, that, that, that's really gone away a lot now. Yeah, and, sure. And, uh, there's there's no rhyme or reason to be in a specific place with the internet being as good as it is. Yeah, and with with everybody knowing every bit of information. Think about this. This was 1986, 88. Yeah, and at that at that time there was no internet, no cell phones, right? No yeah, machines. Yeah, none of that stuff. There was barely voicemail. Yeah. So so all of that stuff uh, was preventing us from assuming we could live anywhere. All right. So, so when it came to uh, be that no of the none of the professional opera, dance, or uh, or theater companies would hire me without a New York City address. Yeah. I I kind of assumed I needed to move to New York City to work in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and so that that's what basically what I did. And I went there. Listen, most people move to New York City with a job. Yeah. Okay. But but here I am already already convinced that I'm tripping over everything and making my way. When I was at BU, I was given a lot of opportunity. I worked on 200 projects when I was there for three years. Wow. And I did everything. I, I was voracious because now I didn't have to do my electives. Right. I didn't have to focus. I didn't have to go anywhere but to the theater. So I built fat suits and learned to weld and yeah. was in a lighting class. And I did, I, I ate it up because it was my profession that for the first time in my life, that's all I had to do. Yeah. And, and I succeeded very, very well, probably not because of my immense talent at that time, yeah. but because of my interest. Oh my God, it could, I just couldn't get enough. And you talk to anybody I went to school with them, yeah. they probably were like, I never wanted him in my, <laughs> in my class or in my room because- he asked so many questions and didn't know what thematics were. And he was insanely green. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And all those things that I learned helped me uh, make the context that later this crazy move to New York city yeah. would, would help out. Uh, listen, I got to New York city and I had enough money to last three months in my apartment. Yeah. And so I was worried. And there I was with my typewriter <laughs> typing out letters. Yeah. I sent 220 letters to everybody I knew. Wow. And I called everybody in my Rolodex. And I had done, uh, I had run shows 
when I was uh, at the Huntington Theater, which is was in residence at, at Boston University. Yeah. So I got to, I got to mingle with professional designers like Jim Joy and John Conklin and all these people that you see in the magazines all the time. Yeah, sure. And and uh, so I I called. The last call on my list mm-hmm. was James Leonard Joy. Yeah. And and I had really liked his thought process. He's he was known in Boston. He worked in at ART and he worked at, yeah. at uh, Huntington Theater. And everything he always did, he would make one piece of scenery do like four things. So it rolls off stage, part of it flips, another part turns around, a, a, a piece is added, and suddenly it's something else, but the structure is the same. Yeah. And seeing that as a young designer, I was overwhelmed yeah very interested so i i just took a risk yeah right? it was the last call nobody was calling me back everybody sent me rejection letters my money was draining out and and james leonard joy called me the second he got uh, my message mm-hmm. and and said uh you know i i told him who i was and that i'd worked on these shows with him in boston and he's like well it just so happens that my full-time assistant has pneumonia and can't work. And I got a lot of work to do. Can you start two days from now? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. and, and so uh, I was overwhelmed and so overwhelmed that I showed up the day before I was supposed to. <laughs> yeah. And, and James is probably telling that story still oh, today. Yeah. But, but, but it, listen, I was in no, as green as I was about everything in college. Yeah. I was super green about everything you do after college too. Like I really, I really wish I knew more about making networks and making connections. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've strived to do since I've been, been a professional yeah. is create a network of people that can rely on each other and call for, for support and, and to try to find work together, things like that. Yeah. But, but man, my first drawing assignment for him to draft uh, a detail for a, a piece of architecture, uh-huh. a cornice, basically. I used the astragal in the wrong place, which, you know, chair rail molding in the cornice oh, and he gave man. it a benefit of the doubt he was like that's an interesting choice to use that particular molding up there uh, tell me why you why you selected that yeah and he could see by my reaction that i didn't know what the heck i was doing yeah and he, and he said you don't know what you're doing and I said, <laughs> no and he goes normally i would fire you if my regular assistant was here but i can't yeah so <laughs> do you mind being educated and i said no and off we went later. It was like four years of work with him. Yeah, yeah. Right, over, over time. Yeah. So, yeah. So so going there without a job is not something I recommend. Oh, man. New York City can eat you up and spit you out for sure. Yeah. But the energy there is also really amazing. I, I moved to New York City three times in my <laughs> life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess technically I moved there twice, but the first time I was uh, maybe maybe six years old, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good that's a good place to be when you're six, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Greenwich playing t-ball in Greenwich Village was fun. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. So James Leonard Joy, definitely one of the people that influenced you. Who else? Uh, who else were you able to uh, work with early in your career? And also, I'm I'm also interested in. Uh, people that have influenced you in other ways. You know, for me, uh, when I was the lighting director at Hubbard Street, we had uh, the choreographer Matzek come in and the way he handled himself really uh, resonated with me. And it's something I think about a lot uh, when people uh, when when people are working for me. So what about you? Do you have any any other examples like that? Yeah, and it's it's tied tied to a, a, a good story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was graduating uh 
at Boston University, and I knew I was I was going to be done in a month. Yeah, and, and I had a professor there who had escaped from Russia at that time. You defected. You didn't just get on a plane and go. He had defected and and gone to Israel and lived there. And then he, he was the former art director at the Moscow Art Theater. Like oh, a, wow, a, a prime character. Alexander Oken is yeah. his name. Yeah, and 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 this guy was the opposite end of practical education that I was getting from a lot of the, uh, like Don Beeman and other other design faculty who were teaching us how to build scenery right. and how to, what tools to use and, right. and all the technologies that we would need. He was the guy that said, just make it big and paint it red. Yeah. Things like, <laughs> yeah. you know, a different kind of, I had a great education from the standpoint of creativity because yeah. I had on one, one hand, this guy who was wildly creative and incredible illustrator. Mm -hmm. And then I had the practical, wonderful uh, designers who had a tremendous amount of experience. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I was talking to him one day and I had heard that he was leaving the school. He was finished teaching at BU. And I said, what's going on? What are you doing? And he said, I'm working with uh, Harold Prince on a new musical. Uh, for Broadway. And it's it's going to open in Baltimore and go around the country and then end up on Broadway, hopefully. Yeah. And I said, huh, <laughs> need an assistant? Uh-huh. <laughs> and he said, actually, yes, I do. <laughs> so I, was, I, I was, well, first of all, mortified that now I was going to assist <laughs> this wildly creative guy when, as we've talked about, I need to know where all my pens are. Right. Yeah. So it's going to be a challenge for me. But Alexander Oaken was great. He was like a, a father figure. He was like a, a, the creativity in that guy in just his pinky would overwhelm you. So uh, as we were working on this Broadway show, I had to go because he was Russian and spoke mostly Russian, very terrible English, actually, yeah. at that time. They needed somebody, everybody who hired us as his assistant living in Boston. Mm -hmm. Everybody who hired us hired me too because they wanted me to be there to hear the instructions and the response so that they could count on the fact that they their process was going to happen. And so I was invited to the one of the first meetings uh, with Harold Prince at, at uh, 30 Rock yeah. and, and in New York City. And I remember putting on a tie and, you know, I never did that <laughs> and, and brushing my ridiculous mop <laughs> of hair. And, and going into this building with him. And I thought, this guy's going to chew me up. and He's going to smell how green yeah, I am, yeah. you know. And and I remember walking into the, the room mm -hmm. and seeing his 27 at the time, Tony's, right. in a semicircle <laughs> behind his desk. And, and all the pictures of everybody I'd ever seen in the movies or on TV or in the theater signed pictures everywhere. And George Abbott walking around at 90-something <laughs> years old and, and his secretary at 89 <laughs> walking around. And in comes Harold Prince and comes right to me, yeah. not to Alex, because he had had meetings with Alex. He said, you must be Michael Downs. I've heard so much about you. And he put his arm around me wow. and walked me through the entire office and introduced me to everybody who worked there and would frequently, as the process went on, I mean, we opened the show in Baltimore at Center Stage mm -hmm. and then went to the Mark Taper Forum in LA and then came rushing into Broadway as quick as possible. And I remember every step along the way, he would ask my opinion. Oh, wow. And he and much a lot of people ask people's opinions, but it's what they do with their eyes after they ask you that tells you that they're actually listening. Yeah. And I think he influenced me because I, I had I had been around creative people, I'd been around great designers. I had I had been given the opportunity to learn from great designers and to, to ask questions of great designers and to make mistakes in college where they can't fire you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but 
But this was the first time that I actually got to work on something that had never been done before and got to see the process hands-on and was influenced by this champion of the theater. Yeah. Like, seriously, uh, it, it changed the way I viewed our business big time. Yeah. That I was actually somebody who had a voice. Yeah. How interesting. And that, that helped. I mean, listen, my, my wife would tell you all the time that one of the things she's constantly shaking her heads about head about <laughs> is that, that, that I am confidently aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like there's something about, I'm a six foot seven guy. Yeah. Very tall. And I'm very confident about what I do. And I think it's because I've been in a situation where I've had to exist on my own in some yeah. cases. Yeah. Moving to New York. Yes. Going to, around the world to different countries on your own. That'll do it too. But meeting people like Alex Oaken yeah. and I assisted also Chris Barreca and Loy Arsenis and worked on Broadway shows with those guys. Uh, I, given the opportunity to run the load in, given an opportunity to draft the show yeah. and make the model and put it into the shop yeah. and be the guy the shop calls and the TD works with because the designers are so busy, they can't answer all the questions. Right. That gives you a supreme amount of confidence. Yeah. So uh, I think that above all anything, making connections is one thing. Yeah. Being heard is another thing. Yeah. But developing confidence, that goes right along with creativity. Because listen, if, if you have an idea and you're not confident enough to talk about it, the best idea is going to go to waste. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I also... Um... I also feel like ownership is tied in that as well. One of the first big lessons I learned as an assistant was you have to take ownership of the work that your designer is giving you. Yep. It took me a it took me a minute to figure that out because I I was you know I'm a, I'm a polite person. I was I was very uh, I was aware of my greenness, you know, much like you were and I without really meaning to, I passed the buck to my designer a lot when I first started. Uh, now that you're a designer, you know how much you hate that. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not, you know, it's not at all uh, that they need to control everything. Quite the opposite. They want help. They yeah. need you. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, the shop doesn't want to uh, reconnect with somebody who was at the beginning of the project, but really not in it all the time. Yeah. But with our breakneck speed, again, they want to talk to the person who's drawn it. They want to talk to the person who's solved all the problems so that they can make quick decisions. And yeah. that confidence is one thing, but, but talking to the right person is also another. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a really good point. So is that, so being on that show, is that what kind of solidified you staying in New York? Well, remember that, that show happened right as I was uh, finishing college yeah. So I, I hadn't made the commitment to New York City. And, uh, and I, okay. I didn't make the commitment as long as Alex Oaken was hiring me to do shows all over the place. Tales of Hoffman at, at some opera company somewhere. Oh, sure. And we did a couple of Russian plays because everybody wanted him to design stuff that he had designed at Moscow Art Theater. So we, we, we were working a lot. And it wasn't until he decided that he wanted to work uh, with a younger designer Mm -hmm. uh, as an assistant is when I started thinking I need to make a commitment because I'm getting jobs here and there, but they're not coming to me because I don't have a, a an address. So I, yeah. I hooking up with James Leonard Joy was probably the smartest move because he was working on Broadway all the time. Yeah, and, sure. And he was working in regional theaters all over the place. Yeah. And so all of those things 
helped me learn how the business works. And, yeah. and uh, you know, you get to see all the theaters. And because he was working so much, I often went with him to the load-ins and was draft, drafting in the back room of the theater on the next thing. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, and and he's a wildly creative person as well, mm-hmm. but super super practical, developing ideas of how to solve theater problems mm-hmm. all in a cheap and cheerful way. And I keep saying cheap and cheerful. That that's something that is a reoccurring theme in in my life. The theater teaches you how to come up with solutions that are affordable. We call them sometimes gypsy solutions. <laughs> you know. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that it, it's not always the most expensive solution that is the best one. And often yeah. when somebody tells you you don't have the budget for that or the labor for that or the man hours for that or the, the strength of the theater building for that, <laughs> that, that, you have to actually become creative and come up with a way of making it happen in other ways cheaper. Yeah, yeah. yeah he taught me a lot about that. Wow, that's really great. That's really great. And he always put a, an aqua color in his set somewhere. And forever, everybody was confused about why it was always in every show. Mm-hmm. And, and when I went to work with him, I worked in his apartment in yeah. a converted closet, mm-hmm. which was the drafting room and the model making room <laughs> and near the blueprint machine. Oh, man. <laughs> and, 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 and I noticed in the elevator every time I went uh, up and down to get into his apartment, there was an aqua colored freeze around the top of the... <laughs> Um, of, it's teal. It's not really aqua. It's more teal. Yeah, uh, it's like a fake marble that was all the way around. And he he had just looked at that so much that it made him feel comfortable. That's what, that's what I so he, he taught me a lot. He also taught me how to be myself. Yeah, a lot because he he was a character. Yeah, he, he changed the English language to be funny. Yeah, he did tons of things to uh, lighten, like he often would slam something down in a meeting mm-hmm. to make everybody jump, and he would often. Uh, slam a, a theater seat over and over and over again to break break the monotony of a tech. <laughs> so he was he was not as good as Craig Miller, a lighting designer who I worked with years ago. Who was, you wanted to be on the headsets during a show with him? <laughs> the things he said made you laugh. But yeah. understanding that you could be a personality yeah. is great because you want to be a designer everybody respects or a designer everybody wants. So you look at all these people yeah. and you you see that. That, that they offer this or that, and you try to glom on some of those attributes. Yeah. And man, the, the amount of, of fun and laughter that that guy generated in a process was something never to forget. Yeah, I believe that. Well, they, and, and you and I have talked about this for years, you know, the idea of, uh, and um, Jeff, uh, who used to assist Theron Musser, um, he, you know, very famously said like, well, yeah, you, you're able to draft the light plot, but are you any fun at dinner? Exactly. <laughs> and I, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of kids, I felt this coming out of school. I, well, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to overstep. So I was afraid to be myself. And, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I think eventually if you're working with people that just are inherently themselves and don't know how else to act, it, you, you know, you start to understand that authenticity is okay. You know, even if yeah. you're, even if you're goofy, even if you're difficult, right? Well, I've often said that, that uh, in performance, Everybody wants to hire the triple threat, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but in in design, you need to be a quadruple threat. Okay, okay. you need to you need to to be creative. Yeah, like we've talked about ad nauseum this this call. <laughs> uh, you need to be creative. You need to be able to work with people in a collaborative way yeah. and convey convey your idea onto paper. Yeah, 
so that you can communicate with everybody on the team. Okay, so collaboration and and being able to convey your idea. Mm-hmm. And the, the third thing is you need to be able to solve problems quickly because that always happens. Yeah. We talked about it a little bit with load in yeah, often sure. during a process. There's something that happens and materials didn't come in that you wanted. Yeah. You have to and then the fourth thing is you have to be fun at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> or in, in your case, at dinner. Yeah, sure. So yeah, exactly. Those are the important things that make you unforgettable. Yeah. Like, and and, ne- and necessary. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, how much how much time did you spend in New York? And and was that most of the was that mostly theater work? Well, I, you know, I I graduated with a theater degree. <laughs> so the first sixteen years of my career, I, I spent pursuing a life in theater yeah because that's what you do with a theater degree right yeah, you know, yeah. that's what they taught us at bu that you're going to work at all these places and you might start at dinner theater and you might work your way up and work on broadway blah 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 yeah so sure. i moved i lived there for 17 years yeah and over three times you know that that was a 17 year commitment yeah to new york city and i often told everybody i had the best life in new york city because I really got paid to leave New York City all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned touring and traveling quite a bit. Um, uh, I'd love to talk a little more specifically about that. I know you mentioned uh, doing the South American tour of Greece, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I, I've heard I've heard a, a couple stories of already. But uh, uh, how, how was that experience? And and what did? Uh, and I'd love to hear also just in general how you think touring changed your approach to not just design, but also working in the industry in general? Well, I mean, first things first, uh, Brazil is a beautiful country, an unbelievable space to, to be hired to do anything. And, and thankfully, the producers who hired me to do it didn't want to do an American version of, of Greece in Brazil, but wanted to touch on all the things that Brazilians love, which is inclusive of not only, but inclusive of bright colors, yeah. the, the dance moves and the music of the time period, it all generated from South America yeah. and, and their love and acceptance of people who are different like drag queens. Yeah. So, so a lot of the things we got to do on our project made it vastly different than any other Greece. Greece happened to be the first musical ever, ever designed in high school. Oh yeah. So, right. In my high school in Wichita, Kansas, received the first not-for-profit uh, 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 license to do the show. Wow. So that's how long ago that was. <laughs> but, but in any case, I got to design this and basically was got to do everything I ever wanted to do for the Greece that I designed in high school. They couldn't afford and do all that stuff. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a blast. The things about being in a foreign country mm-hmm. are the things you would assume. Like there's some communication issues. I certainly don't know Brazilian Portuguese, right? And can't can't even imagine learning it. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the breakneck speed that we're put under to get the project uh, up and running, uh, and also the the fact that it had to be built in a town that was far away from where it was being rehearsed made it complicated in a different way. And and I've de- I've designed tours in four continents, mm-hmm. and they're all they always present different challenges. The the most important one is is language. Yeah. Because you you really want to make sure your idea is conveyed properly. So it just forces you to be more communicative on paper. Yeah. Because, because one thing you can't screw up is the metric. And the measurements are clear, the paint elevations are clear. 
everybody has been doing theater their whole life. They understand how the process works. So it's only when you get into the jams of materials aren't available in this particular country. Yeah. It Brazil at the time wasn't a very wealthy country. They've become more of a of a uh, international player because of some oil they discovered off the coast. Right. But at that time they were considered by some to be a third world country. And so the problems of uh, third world countries was prevalent everywhere mm -hmm. in the shop in the shop people got paid with sandwiches so the longer it took them to do jobs the more they ate so there were there were challenges for that stuff wow. but i worked with some of the most brilliant painters who were all from peru they were all native uh they were native uh, aborigines oh my uh, gosh who who learned to paint really well uh, i guess growing up and became sought after for Brazilian theater. Wow. So, so it, it ended up being something that I knew exactly when we got to the painting phase, it was going to look magical. Wow. So the, the, the interesting thing about tours in general, I think, is that it expands your, your knowledge of the world. This, yeah. The, I don't remember what person said it, but you can trace back all the problems we have with fear and racism and disappointment in society to not traveling. Yeah. The second you start traveling and seeing other cultures and respecting the way other people do things, it changes your life considerable. It changes oh, yeah. your opinion of your own country. It changes your opinion of uh, uh, other people in the world. And now with social media, you know, all those people I worked with can, can stay in touch with me. At that time, it was, you know, you thought you would never see them again when you left on the project. Yeah, but I think the the my favorite place to work, obviously, other than the things that Brazil provides outside the theater and Bali and Indonesia and all those places that are so beautiful. Yeah, it, I really had an affinity with working in Germany on American musicals and did so. I was over there for I think seventeen months over three years. Wow, doing, doing four or five uh, musicals. Yeah, and, and, and really top notch performance and top notch scenic and incredible technology to support it and you know it's a tour yeah. so it's not like we used to do where we built the scenery and stapled it into whatever building <laughs> we were doing right yeah. This, yeah this time it has to come apart and it has to fit on this many trucks and it has to fit in all these different theaters yeah and when you're working in europe you're sometimes working in theaters that were built in the 1400s yeah you know oh, and man. they don't have the same kind of capabilities that modern facilities do now, in some cases in Germany, they've built theaters for like Phantom and and some of the other uh, big shows that were they were coming in. But obviously, uh, you still have to worry about as as we say, you have to design it the show in a box that fits in the smaller space, mm -hmm. and then it's all about masking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, oh, so that that helps a designer in in so many ways, right? I never knew I was going to be working in rock and roll and in broadcast where in some cases you have to load in through what is a standard door, not right. even a standard rolling door or even a standard loading door. Yeah. But you have to figure out how to go up six flights of stairs and then go through a standard door. A lot of times that, that, uh, that solution is handled by the technical director and his staff. Mm -hmm. But I want to be the guy who knows where the seams are. Okay. So I, I happen to work with great, technical directors on all those continents mm -hmm. who were interested in involving me in that. There's, I've worked with many technical directors in my whole life who thought the designer should be sitting in a trailer somewhere, slamming a door. Right. But 
I wanted to be uh, that that guy who helped them make it work. Right, right. And and luckily for most of my career, I've been asked to the creative table and asked to the practical table quite often. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The idea of you know because I've done a I've done a uh, number of years of touring as well, and it really changed how I approached really the practicality of doing what I do, but also the design approach as well, as far as just understanding which decisions are important and aren't and communicating those and which decisions to fight for and which decisions to sort of let go by the wayside. Choosing one's battles is up there yeah. among the rules of life, you know, that work not just in business, but in, in relationships and in business and all that stuff. I agree with you. Once you've, uh, uh, once you've done some touring, you can never get the stank off of you, <laughs> which I think is great. <laughs> I would say that I don't want to wash it off. Yeah, exactly. Like, listen, a, a person who's worked in as many areas as I have in the creative arts, yeah. and I'm not blowing my own horn, I'm just saying that you, what you learn in opera is scale, okay? You, what you learn in broadcast is materials. Yeah. What you learn in sport production is distance. Yeah. You know, all those things that you're learning constantly are helping the other areas, the other genres that you work in. So yeah. if you're not able to afford the materials that you just worked with and broadcast, mm -hmm. you know what they look like and can talk to a scenic artist about faking them. Okay, so those, those are the important things. So yeah. gathering, you, look, we're, we're rolling, tripping, actually, through life, discovering things about ourselves and discovering how we work. And those are the elements that are making us better uh, creative collaborators. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Um, speaking of speaking of non theatrical events, uh, let's talk a little bit about your work outside theater, uh, which is so uh, uh, so expansive. Um, uh, first thing to say is you've done a lot of corporate work. What what caused your career to expand into the corporate realm? Shall we say debt? <laughs> Remember, 16, 16 years I put into the theater. And I took a lot of risks and worked on a lot of projects. And the most money I was ever making was as an assistant. Yeah. You know, and, and so working on projects, if you got a job at the public theater as a designer, you made minimum. Yeah. If you worked as an assistant on Broadway, after my sixth assistant uh, job on Broadway, I asked the producer of the next one, yeah. when is it that I can get something other than the minimum? Yeah. And, and their response to me was, Hey, you know how many kids want this job? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you're not going to argue with somebody. They don't know your value. Level. So, so uh, I ran into some debt, uh, made some uh, moves, got into a, an apartment I couldn't, shouldn't have really afforded. Yeah. Things like that. Wasn't making enough money. So I looked around at all my friends who were working still in the business doing theater, but they were spending time drafting these corporate gigs, which at that time were like Broadway shows. Like yeah. the, the first, the first corporate gig I I worked on that was more than just like a Safeway fruit stand. Yeah, was was this Toyota show where they had a headliner, they had a, a Broadway choreographer and twenty four dancers. Oh wow! They, they were launching a new truck line and three new sedans, and the cars were in this huge arena, driving on the scenery, coming around, and that didn't change all the things that I'd come to learn about the business. 
Yeah. This is how much time you have to load in. This is how much budget you have. You still had to be creative, but all these things that were that were uh, that were part of the corporate world were intense. Yeah. Like you were working on a scale that was massive. And don't forget, we were still at that time, we were still drafting by hand. Right? Yeah. So, so as as often as we work in corporate events now, where the where the client says, "Hey, I would really like to see what the, what the set looks like on the short side of the venue." Right. We would have to do that <laughs> either by erasing what we had drawn already oh, man. or redrawing it. So th- things were a lot different as far as timing goes. But that that corporate the corporate world gave me a lot of insight into the fact that, hey, it's the same business. Yeah. And I, I never knew that, right? Yeah. But it is because actually when you boil down what theater is, theater is a bunch of people working to convey a story. Right. So some, some of them talk about it. Some of them direct it. Yeah. Some of them design the stuff that's behind them. Yeah. And this was the same thing. There, I realized there were stories everywhere. Yeah. There were corporate stories, product stories. There was stories not not just about movies and and all the performance based stuff, but this is corporations. You know, the, that they wanted to convey their ideology yeah. or their philosophy or their delivery, and it, it was the same business. And lo and behold, 16 years of working in the theater had taught me a lot of what I call stupid audience tricks that, <laughs> that, that you could use in the corporate world that saved them tons of money. Yeah, sure. Because everybody was like, oh, I need new carpet for the trade show that I'm doing. I'm not going to use last year's. At that time, you just like rolled through the materials. Yeah. Like everybody built Toy Fair from the ground up every year. Oof. And it wasn't until sort of the mid nineties that everybody started saying, Hey, there's, there's some money to be made with reuse. Yeah. So, so learning about the corporate not only gave me an avenue out of debt, yeah, but it also, it also provided me with another area in which I could be a, a visual storyteller, a 3d storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Um, I know that you've done, uh, uh, Salesforce's Dreamforce event. (laughs) Speaking of scale. Yeah. That was big. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Moscone center, you know, is multiple buildings along Howard street in San Francisco. Yeah. And, and for years, it basically every show they put in there had outgrown the facility. Yeah. So they started doing things like closing down Howard Street, which is a street that runs right through the middle right. of the various buildings. They would close it down for the amount of time they were doing the, the show. And everybody did it. Everybody. And they put a huge pile of tents in there yeah. so that you were basically never left the inside of the event the whole time. Yeah. And and I worked with uh, George P. Johnson on the this particular Dreamforce. Yeah. Dreamforce has been there for a long time, and it's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. But they were interested in getting away from the tent, yeah, and and still having the things the tent provided them, like food service, hangout spaces, sure, performance spaces, and what we call the overflow. Yeah. So when when the uh, general sessions are packed and you can't fit any more chairs in there, you need a place for the people that are still there to get a similar experience somewhere. So usually that's an LED screen or a TV or something that allows them to see what's happening in the in the uh, general session. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just tossed it out there as a wild hair bearing scheme, but it really caught hold. And that is get rid of the tent right. and, and make, make it an outdoor park. Right. Like, yeah. like grass the whole thing and make hills 
so that you can see over people. Nice. Put all the make it make it like cafes for the food service. Yeah. You don't have to worry at that time of year so much about the weather. Right. Because you know San Francisco only in certain times of the year can be tough on the outdoors. Uh, and so we did take a little risk. There's always a chance something could happen out there. But, but it, you know, we had a stage at either end and grassy areas and the weather was perfect. Oh, so great. not only did, did people get to play games and hang out and eat and talk business, mm-hmm. but they also got to see what amounted to entertainment and message. Yeah. Concept. And so uh, apparently, I don't know this, but apparently it's been done now. A lot of the companies that do humongous projects at Moscone Center yeah. are following the lead of not, not covering it. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. It's yeah. I mean, who wants to walk through a bunch of tents? Well, I mean, at, at one time it allowed everybody the safety and security of putting product out and and doing all the things that weather doesn't like. You know, so I get it. Yeah, I, I understand. And some of those groups can't don't have the opportunity to work at that time of year so they have to be concerned about some of that stuff yeah that's true but but, but i i I find i find pipe and drape Mm -hmm. and white tents and pretty typical truss structures really super boring oh me too i hate it so much (laughs) and and it it drives me crazy that that's the solution everybody everybody wants yeah and maybe this you know this virus that's happening to the world now that's COVID 19 is going to force us to rethink the industry a little bit. Yeah. But it's hard to imagine that right now because we're still trying to grip, come to grips with how many people we're losing and, yeah. and how, how tough it is to make a living, not only in our, our industry, but everywhere. So uh, I choose not to think about where the industry is going to go, but I will say this, yeah. that that when you work in big corporate events like that, like that one, Dream Dreamforce, mm-hmm. and somebody says, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to use this many square feet of this particular convention center, and we're going to, that, that producers, executive producers, and the like have a formula. Yeah. Like they start plugging in numbers. Square footage. Right. It costs, costs this much in pipe and drape. It costs this much in trust. Right. It costs this much in lights. It costs this much. And it always does. Yeah. And nobody thinks about the project. Okay. Yeah. And that's that's where I think we get into a jam with everybody looking a little bit like everybody. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and you you can make the sign look pretty and you can put a, a frame around an LED screen and you can come up with the newest technology. But ultimately you're 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 trying to to fight against the current right. to do it the way we always do it. Um, one really interesting project that you, uh, uh, that I'd love for you to talk about, um, speaking of, of, uh, interesting given circumstances, um, the, you did this, you've done some work with the military and (laughs) I, I always assumed that they, I mean, the, what was (laughs) it said, it's so interesting to me that like, uh, not, not coming from military background, not coming from military family that like anyone that does what you or I do could be invited into a project like that. So t- talk to me about that. Well, as far as project goes, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a long-term uh, study. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It was, I, I, I don't know how far it went. You don't usually, it's been 10 years, so I'm able to talk about it now, but it, it, there was a, a, a long period of time there where I was not allowed to discuss what we did, what we talked about. Right. And it was right after the, right after the second well maybe yeah it was the second gulf war uh and here's how it happened by the way because i wouldn't assume that i would even though my dad was an rotc and he served in the army and 
thank goodness, because I have great insurance with USAA because of him. Oh, wow. But nobody, nobody ever assumed that I was going to be in the military. I'm six foot seven, so it takes me twice as long to dig a foxhole. <laughs> nobody would want me on their platoon at all. Uh, and, and there's just uh, not that many jobs painting keep off the grass signs at bases. Yeah. So, so I, I was shocked too. But here's, here's how it all goes down. So I have a friend who I went to high school with in Wichita, Kansas, who ended up going to West Point. Yeah. And he played football for West Point. He graduated from West Point, became a Ranger, and then joined the Army Corps of Engineers. And he was one of the, one of the big uh, tough nuts out there mm-hmm. who was putting together facilities yeah. in the desert. Yeah. And he was hearing uh, stories from all the guys that he was with about how difficult it was when somebody would come uh, drive up on a dune in the desert yeah. and only have as much time to shoulder mount some sort of projectile, which they would fire into the camp mm-hmm. and would kill, you know, 12 to 20 people. Yeah. Right. But they fire it and they know they're going to receive return fire immediately. So they don't have time to aim really well. And they got to go right after they shoot it. Yeah. So often their nerves are a little bit shot. Yeah. And so it doesn't always land in the right place. So they were, they were all talking over there about, how to fool the enemy with exact placement of important parts of the camp. Right, right. And, and as you know, in the military, fooling the enemy is is old news, right? If you go back to the Trojan horse, yeah. that, that was a scenic element that really worked. Right, yeah. Right? <laughs> hey, thanks for the gift. Yeah. You know, I smell people. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes that way. If you talk about World War II alone and mm-hmm. all the things, and I, I had been a voracious studier of World War II growing up as a, as a kid, I, I found it, you know, n- not understanding the real loss of war yeah. uh, growing up in Kansas. I, I found it swashbuckling and, and interesting and really latched on to the, the fooling of the enemy part. So if you think about a couple of times in World War II, mm-hmm. uh, you know, General Patton was feared by the Nazis big time. He was like the general nobody wanted to face. Yeah. And so the English put him down the coast from the, from the, uh, from the group that was the task force that was going to actually invade France so that oh. the Germans would think he was, that the task force was going to come with him mm-hmm. from down the coast. So they moved a bunch of stuff. Right. Oh, and wow. so to make the spies who were in England understand that it was real. They not only put general Patton there, yeah. but they also paraded a bunch of troops around and built all these tanks and things. But the tanks were built out of plywood by, by the carpenters from the West End in London. Oh, wow. This is inflatable, <laughs> real-sized tanks and airplanes and all sorts of stuff, and then paraded the same group of troops in a big oval, going into a building, changing uniforms, and keeping marching all day. Oh, my so God. The, so all the spies thought there was this huge force with all this backup when it was all fake. Yeah. So in, in Russia, in order for the Luftwaffe to not know where to drop a bomb in the major cities of, of, of Russia – which by back then before radar, you had to look through a hole in the bottom of the plane. Right. And usually the biggest empty space was the town center. Yeah. Big courtyard. So the Russians paid their scenic artists to paint rooftops all over the cobblestones of those big courtyards. <laughs> so when you look through the plane, you saw endless roofs and you missed your target. Oh my God. So those, are, those are theatrical uh, solutions that fooled an enemy. Yeah. So, yeah. So back to the story, my, my buddy, uh, contacted all his old pals at West Point mm-hmm. and said, "You really need to talk to this guy. And when you see him, you're not gonna you're not gonna think he's got much to say. But listen to him, yeah, because he is a creative person." And and so I went, 
I had just worked on a project in Vegas where on a smaller scale, we had ionized a piece of atmosphere in order for smoke that's being blown not to, not to blow away. Interesting. And, and we talk about this, you know, I need to know a little bit about everything, but yeah. I don't need to know everything about anything. Uh-huh. So this is one of the things where all I had to do is find the right scientists and the right guys right. to figure out how electronically to stimulate uh, a part of the atmosphere so that things that normally happen don't happen. Interesting. Right? So we talked about it. First of all, I gave them the same spiel plus a couple of others about Trojan horse and Patton and blah, blah, blah. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and they were like, okay, okay, so you understand because they, they don't have to teach me that there are ways to, to fool anybody. Right, right? sure. So, so I, I began talking to them about this reionization and this, this uh, alignment of atoms, okay. which worked really well on a small scale. And I said, wouldn't it be interesting to be able to pump a section of the desert full of some sort of mist that you could project the the camp image onto while the real camp was dimmed slightly. Okay, so mm -hmm. you think about a guy who only has a few seconds to fire some kind of projectile, he's not going to look for the dimmest part. Yeah, He's going to look for the brightest part. Now, I, I don't know whether we got to the point where they did tests of any of it, but the fact that I spent two full days there talking about that and other ideas was really, really, really gratifying. Yeah. Not only because my parents thought, you know, I was like a theater hippie <laughs> and, and didn't have anything to, to do with reality. Well, bottom line is, you know, some scenic technology can actually participate in the saving of lives because yeah. the goal was to get them to miss. Yeah. Right. 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 And so those are the things we need to come up with. Now, when I was there, I learned about a lot of, technologies they were developing in, in space, which you still can't talk about, right. that, that were saving lives of different polymers that they were building uh, tents and things with yeah. that would simplify the explosives that were landing oh, in the space. Oh, interesting. Was, was helpful. So a combination of everything. Listen, for as my friends in the FBI say, every, every story you hear about a threat or something difficult that's happened to the nation, there's probably 50 others that were stopped before you ever knew it. Yeah. So, so I, I imagine the same goes to technology, wartime technology, yeah. that there's so many things that are in development that we'll be using in scenic technology. Yeah. Years, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that are saving lives right now. And that's the important part. It's, again, it's about being creative enough to come up with an idea and uh, creative enough to convey it and creative enough to, to discuss the next steps. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I think also, you know, you were talking earlier about um, about your ag aggressive confidence, right? If yeah. you're if you're if you're in a room filled with uh, you know a bunch of army uh, army corps uh, engineers or oh, it was worse than that. We're talking lowest guy was a bird colonel, the highest guy was two star general. Yeah, like that epaulets and the all the ribbons, it was overwhelming. Plus, it's West Point, you know, right. Right. It's the history and everything about it makes you makes you pucker slightly. <laughs> that's that's one way to put it. <laughs> I think what's great about doing what what you do is that you know it doesn't change doesn't change the approach. You know, you've got okay, what does this project need? What environment do I need to create? What what are my parameters as far as budget and practicalities? What would be cool, don't forget. What would what would be fun to work on? Right. That has a lot to do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's not it's it's 
I hear a lot of my, uh, a lot of these corporate gigs that I work, uh, you hear them talk about like, we need to think outside the box. We need to think creatively. Yeah. Right. And they're talking to, I did a show with, uh, uh, it was, uh, and I've forgotten the name of the organization, you know, it was a national association of essentially like quality control professionals, you know, Ooh. people that are just like, they're, you know, and they threw a bunch of interesting speakers at them and they were all about like getting outside of your cubicle. Like clearly this audience or, you know, they're not, they're not extroverts. Right. Yeah. And you hear, you hear about the need for creative solutions across the board. Right. But, but then in the, at the same time, we're, you know, we don't want our kids to go into theater, right? We don't want to, we don't want them to become art directors. We want them to become electrical engineers, right? Uh, that goes back to the safety thing, don't you think? That's all you want as a parent is knowing that your kid is safe and secure. Yeah. Yeah, which, which I totally understand uh, as much as someone who is not a parent can understand. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I think it's so interesting to me that, you know, it's, it's learning music, it's learning the arts, it's learning how to do theater at any, at any stage in your life. Theater in particular, like we're all doing, you know, it's a group of people, you're, you're, you're learning creativity, you're learning teamwork, you're learning communication, you're learning about being relied on by the rest of the people involved in this project. You know, at any time you're moving a piece of scenery or pulling a lever on the saltwater dimmer rack or whatever, like you're in theater, you're doing that because nobody else is doing it. Right. There's no, right. And, and if, and if you're not there to do it, it won't happen and something will go wrong, you know, even if it's something small. And I think it's so interesting, the idea of, well, well, we want you to be creative, but we don't want you to, to make a life out of it. And the reality Mm -hmm. is that, you know, there's, if you, it's like learning, if you learn how to learn, then the world opens up to you. If you learn how to be creative, then the world opens up to you. I think. It does. Yeah. I mean, listen, the, the, you know, high jumping, right. You know, the, yeah, that's, it's a great story because it, it, it teaches you that it's never too late to keep uh, being creative. Yeah. Right. So for, for, for as long as high jump happened, you'd scissor kicked over the over the rail. Right. Yeah. And and you could only go so high because you were scissor kicking. Right. Uh, the guy who invented the Fosbury flop, his <laughs> name's Dick Fosbury, he, he came up with a new way, which is going he could get more height by going over backwards, right? Right. And it became known as the Fosbury flop. <laughs> and and a lot of people know and thank him constantly for setting new uh, new parameters to a very pretty typical sport, right? It changed everything. Right. It changed how you approached the jump, how you jumped, how you landed, everything about it changed how we had to pad the space. Right. Uh, so many things changed, right? But few people know that he, he came up with that idea when he was already number one in the world. Oh man. <laughs> right. So that, yeah. that's, that's a sign that, that you, it doesn't matter what level you are. Yeah. You're still thinking, you're still coming up with, an idea and, and trying to, trying to make it better. Yeah. And I think that's it, when you're in the corporate theater world, not that that's a high jump, but it's the same rule applies. You can be asked to think outside the box. Yeah. And then most people at the table will say, you know, it's safer just to do what we did last year and paint it blue. Right. Right. You know, there's, there's always going to be those kind of confrontations, but I think that's, again, it's, it's not 
it's not up to them to set the parameters of what we could do. It's up to us to come up with the coulds and the woulds yeah. and make them believe in the shoulds. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Because because if we don't, if we don't at least broach the outside of the box, whatever that is, right. It, it's, it's never going to be part of the conversation. Right. And, yeah. And, and to be honest with you, I've, I've been on many projects where I didn't get hired back because pretty much everybody at the table didn't want to be really thinking outside the box. Yeah. And, and, and you don't want somebody like me at those tables because I'm always going to ruffle it up. You know, that's a waste of time for most people. If they've already made the commitment and the decision that they don't, then we can't push them. They, yeah. they know how to get in touch with us once they, once they want to go that way. Yeah, agreed. And 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 in those situations, I feel like it would be a waste of both parties' time to try and force it. Hiring you to be the environmental designer for an experiential event, you don't you don't hire someone like you if you just want to put a bunch of tents on the street. But the but the good part about that is yeah. okay, say say somebody has come to you and said, Listen, all we do ever, and we're really comfortable with it, yeah. is make a tent city. Tent village. Uh, what can we do to make it look better than a tent village? Yeah, sure. There are ways of making tents look better. Sure. By positioning, by branding, by color, by choosing the newest tent, the different style tents. Right. There's a lot. My my problem is when they're dead set on wedding style pole tents. You know, yeah. there's not a lot you can do in there other than pro- video projecting on the inside or hanging Christmas lights. But people just know that's what it is. Looks like a wedding to me. So, I mean, the good part is you you work on these projects and you did it all in college, right? You had paper projects that taught you how to do these things and, and you filed them away forever. Right. Well, these, these, in some cases, all of your work on a show that never makes it. Yeah. Like, like that salesforce.com project, the Dreamforce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Almost eight months of work. And we went through five designs, maybe more. Wow. Before we got there. Now, all of that information is in my head. Yeah. A cool thing I did for this, but nobody did it. A cool rendering of that, but nobody did yeah. it. Yeah. It to be in the Moscone Center where I'm doing two other shows coming up, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, so it fuels uh, much like every morning going through certain sites on on the web yeah. to see what other people are doing around the, the world. All of that goes in the bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That's why I tell everybody never say no. Yeah. Okay, what what does that mean? Never say no? Because mom always said you can say no a couple of times. <laughs> really my my no is that when when people say, hey, you want to go see this gig or hey, do you want to go see an art show? Yeah. Or hey, my friend is having a party and he's this really creative person. Do you want to come? I'm tired. I'm overworked. But I say never say no. Yeah. No all the time because everything you see affects you as a designer. Yeah. Everything you experience affects you. The person who's going to be at that party, who's not throwing the party, who has the wild, crazy, cool idea that he's going to mention, yeah. is going to inspire conversation with everybody at the party. And nine times out of 10, there's a collaborator or two in that audience. Yeah. going to say, hey, I like the way you think. How can we work together? And that's that's the nature of our business yeah. is okay, being fun at the bar at dinner is one thing, right? But actually, actually expanding your circle and being the pebble of the concentric relationship with that everybody has in this business is the best part of getting out of the house. Plus it could end up with a really great story. Yeah. 
Well, so speaking of really great stories, uh, <laughs> it's not it's not like you've only done corporate work and theater and this one interesting thing with the military. Uh, I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the different types of projects you've done. You mentioned the Vancouver Olympics, but I know you've done some work with NASCAR and the NFL, and uh, and you got nominated for the Democracy Plaza uh, design. Uh, I part of what is interesting to me is how you got those jobs. So talk to me about the Vancouver Olympics. How did oh, you okay. get that? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, for, for nine years, I designed ESPN's Bassmaster Classic, which is the World Series of Bass Fishing. Right. And and it's it's I never knew I wasn't a fisherman or as they call it in the business, an angler. Ooh. I was never I was never that guy. Yeah. And I I went fishing when everybody else was fishing, but I it did I didn't live all right. So I didn't know there was a World Series of Bass Fishing. Sure. And I didn't know the kind of money they make for three days of fishing, catching five fish a day, trying to outweigh the other anglers who were catching the same amount of fish yeah. over the three-day period. I had no idea. Wow. And and uh, I had taken a job uh, creating the art department for Production Plus Technologies out of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, Burr Ridge, actually, not quite downtown, but in, in Burr Ridge. And they had a client named Christy Nicolay who was uh, working at ESPN yeah. and she was in charge of Bassmaster Classic that first year. Yeah. And she also did X Games and the World Gymnastics. And uh, she's totally always, I think she still does all those things and still does the US Open. Oh, but wow. she, she was finishing up her tenure at ESPN for this one and she wanted to do this really cool thing, change it up a little bit. Yeah. So it's Bassmaster Classic is a is a basketball or hockey arena that's been uh, change so that you can drive your truck with the trailer and a boat on it into the venue. Oh, wow. Drive it around through the screaming 16 to it's like NASCAR on the water. Yeah. Bloodthirsty fans <laughs> who follow anglers just as, as a lot of uh, fans follow NASCAR drivers. And they flock to the like when I saw 6,000 people watch boats leave a dock at 6 a.m. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> these people really love this sport. Yeah, right? yeah. So imagine at the end of the day, you come into the arena and you're standing in your boat as it drives through the throngs of the bloodthirsty crowd. Right, right. Hoping that you've got the fattest fish on, on the deck of your boat. And you weigh them live in front of an audience and televised. Yeah. Okay, so she needed somebody uh, to, to not only design it, but make sure it got built. And I was on staff at Production Plus Technologies, mm -hmm. which is a shop that also has AV and uh, lighting and, and also trucking and all that stuff. So sure. I was in the perfect position to be on her side, right? So we, we knocked it out of the park. It was a blast. Great. And, and we were able to do both live event and TV. And often, as you know, that can be a struggle, even from the lighting standpoint, not, not just camera angles, but, sure. but lighting. You can't light a, a public event often like it needs to be for the public without yeah. making it too dark for TV and vice versa. Yeah. So, so uh, we, we knocked it out of the park and she left. So I ended up staying for nine years on Bassmaster Classic working on that and uh, years pass. Yeah. And I get a call. Uh, and now Christy Nicolay mm -hmm. has elevated herself into basically she was working for the mothership. She was working for the international uh, Olympic committee. And she was basically in charge of sport production. Oh, wow. About the, the production that goes into celebrating the winners. Yeah, okay. And and uh, Vancouver Olympics is in Canada. So 
usually the the country of origin is where you get your designers. Right. And apparently, sure. I don't know who it was, but apparently uh, the designer that they chose in Canada had worked for three years and spent a lot of money mm-hmm. and had nothing to show for it and wasn't really uh, disappointed when wow. he showed up without his homework. And and so they said uh, the VanOck, which is the Vancouver Organizing Committee, said, "Okay, we're not having a Metals Plaza up on the mountain at Whistler." Uh, Whistler. Yeah. And the International Olympic Committee said, uh, "No, you're having that. You're going to make it work, <laughs> and Christy Nicolay is going to do it." And they said to her, uh, "You know, can you get it done?" And yeah. she said, "Let me make a few calls." I was the first one she called. Wow. Because of our experience that one time, but she knew that I would jump in with both feet. And she said, these are the problems. This is when we need it. You have less than a year to yeah. do a job that most everybody gets four years to do. Yeah. And I need drawings in 10 days. Wow. We don't have time to send you up here to survey the property. It's outdoors and, and good luck. <laughs> and, you know, she said, do you want it? She didn't say you're, you're stuck with this project. She said, you want it. And when the International Olympic Committee calls you, like, seriously. And, yeah. and this this brings up another topic, which my wife constantly asks me, like when the NFL asked me to make a floating stage outside of Soldier Field in in the ba- boat basin behind Meg's field. Right, right. And had this idea that there was going to be a kickoff game to celebrate the last year's Super Bowl mm-hmm. team, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. How do you know that you can do it? Right. Like, it's overwhelming that they want something in a boat basin. Do you even know how to make a floating stage? No, but I know somebody who can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Again, so so I I I just jumped in with both feet. And the yeah. good part the good part about uh, relationships is those years had passed, mm-hmm. but there was still a connection there. That she has a job to do. She's not going to solve the problem. She needs somebody like me who's going to take it off her plate. Yeah, she's she's got a hundred venues mm-hmm. to worry about. Mm-hmm. As many sports as there are, there's one venue for each of the sports. Yeah, yeah. And, and she has to be worried about that stuff. She wants to hire somebody who can handle it. Yeah. And so I felt really honored that she would uh, call on me to do that. But our relationship, it was like no time had passed. Mm-hmm. That's the beautiful thing about when when you're in the arts, you're asked to to develop a relationship and trust. Yeah. And, and participate and and work together fast. And furious, yeah. and with, with no doubts, right? Like confidence again, too. And so, when you don't see those people for a long time, yeah, it's amazing to me every time how that feeling is still there, yeah. Because you went through something really intense together, and we'll never forget it. I imagine it's how people feel who've gone through military service and had to re- had to rely on the buddy system, and and I got your back, and uh, you know, I got your six, all that stuff. It pertains to life in general, and even though what we do isn't life-threatening sure. and doesn't save lives for the most part, it is something that it, it, it's in our DNA. It is. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think I look at the, <laughs> I look at all of the, um, shall we say, difficult load-ins that I've been a part of, and I remember them uh, more specifically than the easy ones. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, I and the people who were there too. Yes, and the people who were there. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. When we were we were in Germany at uh, when I was at Hubbard Street, we were in Germany on my first real big German tour and we were at a theater in 
uh, in Cologne uh, or Köln, as they say, Köln. And we had gotten shoehorned in and were uh, eating into the crew's uh, summer vacation. And they didn't like it. And they decided that they would make an example out of us to show management that they should schedule shows in that time of year. And so I walked into a theater that I had no clue we were dead in the water, you know, and they had just finished. They were, we walked in and they were still loading out an opera. And my crew at Hubbard street who ordinarily just acted as department heads, you know, they, my stage manager and prop head was hanging park hands for me because there were no Germans to be found in this German theater. And I, you know, I remember so distinctly being in a theater without any air conditioning and, uh, you know, and asking my, asking our crew to help us hang lights because otherwise we were going to be there till three in the morning. And it was just, you know, uh, uh, the feeling of camaraderie, Yeah, you know, it, you, it never goes away. We've, I, everybody's done summer stock. Oh yeah. You know, and, and summer stock, you frequently are, are dished over some interns mm-hmm. or actors who have bit parts, who have time to do it. Right. But, We've all been in the situation where everything has to come together to get it up yeah. and get it on. And and I've been lucky in my career to develop friendships with some people who are now Broadway, seasoned Broadway performers sure. who at a time were like, hey, I just base coded this. Is that good enough? You know? <laughs> yeah. And they, they still remember it, you know, and, yeah. and we all work together. And and I think that's that's what makes that's what makes our industry so wonderful. Yeah. I think it's is when push comes to shove, everybody's a gypsy. <clears throat> yeah, we just change our hats. I really believe that you know you could put on any hat that you have to wear, even performance, if you had to. Right. Yeah. It might not be the best performance that ever happened, but the show would go on. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And I, th- I think that's what that's what being in the creative arts teaches you is that a you you could do anything if you put your mind to it. And B is somebody's got your back and C is it's going to be memorable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems like there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of commonality as far as your approach to all these different styles and, and all these different corners of the industry, you know, the idea of being creative and collaborative and bringing a team that's going to support you to the table and, you know, uh, uh, thinking about, uh, you know, merit, marrying, your creativity with practicality, you know, those are all, these are all common threads that don't change whether you're at West Point talking about how to ionize the air around a camp in the Middle East, or, you know, whether you're in Bassmaster Classic. <laughs> I think it's so, it's so interesting and, and also in a lot of ways comforting. Uh, you know, so many people I think have careers or jobs that are like, you know, like you said, you know, designing a refrigerator, you know, which is, which can be a creative endeavor, but like you're, it's there's at the end of it, it's always going to be a fridge. You know what I mean? I say this every time. Yeah. Uh, It always goes, goes back to the story. What story are we telling? Because frequently you get started on a project and people start tossing out gimmicks, right? Like we should, we should have this kind of hook to get people in. We should do this. But, but I always come back to why are we doing anything what is the story because if it if it's tense or if it's a refrigerator or if it's anything like that if the story is worth telling right then we have to ramp up our thoughts about what that story is yeah and, and again if you're surrounded by the right creative characters 
you're going to, you're going to win. No, no doubt. Yeah. Um, we've been put in positions in the past where we've had to work with, I've, I've had to work with very famous people who have a lot of ideas about what it should be and how it has to be. Right. And in some cases follow the vernacular of that person who's a, a team player. Yeah. And, and you have two choices. You can either make a mess of everything mm-hmm. or you can find a way to make it good for you. Yeah. And, and again, having somebody like a Daniel Arsham yeah. uh, tell you that this is the vernacular, this is my design uh, look and feel and my clothes are going in your store. Right. And to have that be the place to start is like telling me there's two columns on the stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, well, I don't have to go through all this process of defining soccer when Daniel Arsham is defining soccer in his way and I'm selling his product. Right. So, so in, in that case, you, you make your own wins and that, that win is that you figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like how you put that. Um, the speaking of figuring it out, uh, I, you know, you've, you've said this before having a cheap and cheerful solution. Uh, and, uh, it, and I, and I know this story, which is why I'm asking you about it, but the, your work on democracy plaza and the, um, the window washer, you know, it's so great. There's actually two. And who knew that there was actually a cheap and cheerful award that people give? <laughs> it's not on my list. Yeah, yeah. But, but I made it into a magazine story about it. And that is that we spent a lot of time trying to – what we were doing – this was four elections ago. Yeah. We were trying desperately to create a place where everybody would go for this uh, – for election night coverage. And that included like broadcast live what events could happen. And they wanted to turn, uh, they wanted to turn Rockefeller Plaza into democracy plaza, yeah. basically. Yeah. And, and so that's how it became what it was. And, and we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, let's go back in time when everybody went out of their office and checked their pocket watch when the bell tolled on the, the only tower in town. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if everybody's down here live watching the coverage, how do we tell them who's ahead? Yeah. So they wanted to have they wanted to have a basically the thermometer moving up the building between the two guys who were running for president. Right. And and so we went through countless very expensive tests about whether we could embed LED strips around each window oh, yeah. or whether we could get somebody behind the window to light the each office a different color and would that really tell the story? Right. And it, it costs most often the LED solutions were always super expensive. Oh yeah, yeah. And ultimately, it's a hysterical building, a historical building. <laughs> so you can't put anything in the windows that's not a spring cleat. Right. You know, so then you're worried that it's going to unspring and hurt somebody miles down below. Yeah. So I suggested, hey, is there any possibility that this building has window washer? Uh, the window washer cages that go up and down on pulleys. And they're like, yeah. And we just finished on that side of the building. So the swing arms are still there. And, <laughs> and I said, why don't we just encase the window washer cage with LED that has the name of the, the opponent on each one. Yeah. And then unroll a drape as it goes up. Right. So it's, it's basically doing the same thing. And you, there's no doubt about who's red and who's blue right. and who's high and who's low. And it's very clear mm-hmm. and it's a cheap and cheerful solution that actually paid off big time. The other was yeah. 
they wanted people to skate immediately after a state went red or blue and under the ice they had painted the united states and all the states oh they wanted them to turn blue so we talked about encasing the ice yeah. with led under the ice and making high tech solutions of turning colors on quickly mm-hmm. but ultimately the, the solution that worked was getting huge rolls of gel yeah and cutting the gel into basically kentucky or utah <laughs> shape and one of each running out there putting it down on the ice spraying it with water which would immediately freeze yeah and then skate on it directly so again all that time spent in theater coming up with ways to do the same thing without money yeah helped teach us how to think properly in these situations where we're asked to come up with solutions that are cost effective and turn the head. 